All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is WTF, my podcast. Thank you for listening. Today is exciting. I, I talked to uh, Vice President Al Gore here in the garage. Uh, his, he's got a new film uh, that, yeah, that yeah, well, you know what it is. It's a, an inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power. Uh, I watched it. I've seen both of them. It's devastating, uh, but uh, and and informative and scary, as my buddy Dean uh, calls it. Uh, oh, it's a, an earth crumbler. That would be the genre. Yes, a documentary earth crumbler. And I don't always know what to do with the information. Uh, uh, if information frightens me, I tend to just uh, isolate on that. That that okay. Now I'm frightened. And then I go to hopeless, and then I go to uh, what's the point of anything? You know, why am I not eating more pie? But it was great to talk to uh, the vice president, and uh, uh, do I call him former vice president? I think they always go by vice president for the rest of time. I think that's the appropriate address. But it, it uh, it was great to talk to him, and it was a specific conversation for the most part about you know what what we can do what is happening and a little bit about him and and some some uh, some stuff about what's happening in today's political climate he is definitely a pro he's definitely the real deal he might have been president uh and i i, I say that uh not like uh he almost was he might have actually been president but that's old news and he seems to have put it behind him but that's happening that'll be happening in just a few minutes me and uh, Al Gore speaking. All right, so here here is a, cu- a couple emails I think I need to address. And I do want to talk about uh, having the president here, a sitting president and a, a former vice president here a little bit. But first I want to say, um, I want to read this. Uh, subject line, and, and, and this is reasonable, and, and I'll cop to it. Subject line, my heart hurts when you call New Haven a shithole. Oh, Mr. Marin, for at least the third time you have degraded my chosen city, this time calling it a shithole. The first time was with Claire Danes. I can't remember the second time. And the third time was today with David Allen Greer. New Haven is a small, and sure, it's no New York City or Los Angeles, but it is a great city with a lot to offer. I've lived here for 13 years on purpose. I even bought a house. It has changed enormously since Mr. Greer lived here and since your failed audition with Yale School of Drama, burn in parentheses. I know you kind of enjoyed your very brief visit in March. Great, great show at College Street Theater. We got a tiny shout out then, but you have returned to your insulting ways. Please come visit and discover our arts, theater, eclectic restaurants, our rivaled pizza, our compassionate and bright citizens, the hills and sound views. Or don't visit. Just stop dissing us on air or on pod. Your number one New Haven fan, Alicia or Alicia. Look, you're right. Uh, It is a default. I do call New Haven a shithole sometimes. And there's there's bigger shitholes in Connecticut, certainly. And there's no reason for me to be condescending or dismissive or call any place a shithole. Uh, unless it's a real shithole. But New Haven isn't. I had a lovely time there the last time I was there. It does seem like it's thriving. Uh, the, the college brings a lot of, uh, of culture to this city. It is pretty. And you're right. It was just a, it was a, a sort of a reflex uh, for me to do it. 
I don't know why I do it, but there there was there was a time, and there probably still is a little bit of that left, uh, just a little decay there. But uh, that's no reason to be condescending, and and I apologize, and I, and I and I apologize earnestly. I will not call New Haven a shithole from here on out, and if I do, look, you know there are bigger problems in the world. All right, one more email here. I like hearing this kind of stuff. Uh, because it starts negative and then gets positive. Got him familiar with that. Subject line, you're the best thing that's happened to my mental health. Hi, Mark. I'm listening to your somewhat recent episode with Jason Manzukis. Love him. And in your conversation about anxiety and narcissism, it dawned on me that I should share with you how much your podcast has impacted my life and mental health. It would be remiss of me to not start by saying this. I used to hate you. I couldn't stand your voice and I felt like all you did was ramble on about bullshit nothings. My husband would put on your podcast when I fell asleep during our yearly road trips back to Michigan and I would wake up deeply annoyed that it was your voice that pulled me out of my escapist slumber. And then you interviewed Simbad. Wow, that that was the the the, the big change for her. I, I I love that it was Sinbad. Anyways, back to the letter. My husband and his brother have been listening to you for years, and it wasn't until he literally forced me to listen to your Sinbad interview that I fell in love. First, because Sinbad was the comedian who introduced me to stand up, and I knew anything with him would be amazing. But secondly, and truthfully, more importantly, I was struck on a deep, raw, emotional level by your candor and transparency about your own life and struggles with addiction and mental health. As a 30-something biracial woman who suffers from depression, anxiety, and PTSD, I never would have thought it would be a middle-aged white man that I connected with so deeply, but your own musings, ramblings, and insights have helped me in more ways than I can describe. You've created a safe space of sorts, uh, and I'm so happy to have it, even if it's just inside my head. The struggle is real, and it always will be, but knowing that I'm not the only one worrying about seemingly stupid shit gives me great comfort. So all of this to say thank you for being so incredibly open and honest about your life. I refuse to believe that I'm the only person that has found such comfort from WTF. So please keep being you, Sindel. P.S. I can't believe that I'm admitting this out loud, but I'm pretty sure I'm Jason Manzukis's female doppelganger, right down to the curly hair. Way less hairy, though. Well, I'm glad to help out, and I'm glad that uh, that you, you know, so it, so I'm an acquired taste. Uh, I, I definitely, I, I get that a lot, you know, like I, I didn't like you and then I liked you, but I, that's good. That's like a cat, but it, but I get it. Yeah. I, 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 I didn't like me either. So I get it. So Al Gore coming over to my house, it was, it, I didn't know what to expect because I didn't know how long, um, the, the secret service stayed on people. I don't know what vice presidents deal with on, on that level. I didn't know. Uh, how insulated he would be or what would happen if there was a, I, I just didn't know what would happen. And it turns out what happened was uh, we got a call, my producer Brendan did, and, and they, they wanted to know if, if some of his people could come over about a half hour early and bring lunch uh, for the vice president. Would it be okay if, they, if he had lunch before uh, our interview, our talk, uh, here at the house. And that was the only call we got. And then we asked about security. Nope. He's just coming with his uh, staff and a PR person. 
So that was a big difference considering that you know, there was a lot of prep that went into President Obama. I, again, uh, he was a sitting president, you know, about 15 Secret Service, about half, about a dozen LAPD snipers on the roof next door, shutting down the neighborhood. Helicopters were involved. Uh, it was uh, it was it was hardcore, hardcore, real security shit. But nope, uh, just a publicist came over with a few bags from a vegetarian restaurant to before the vice president. He came over with, uh, you know, his chief of staff, I guess, or his uh, main guy and a bunch of other people that dealt with him. And uh, he sat at my dining room table. I sat on the computer and he sat and ate a vegetarian meatball sandwich, some vegetarian mac and cheese. And then uh, actually, and I, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn here or I'm divulging anything or betraying our former vice president, but he had two desserts. I will say that uh, uh, Vice President Gore had two uh, ice creams. I watched it happen. And I tried not to talk to him, but you know, I, it was hard. But you know, we, we talked a little bit, but then we got in here and did the business, which was obviously much different than the uh, President Obama interview. And I'd like to take this opportunity to tell you that the, that the Obama interview is actually featured throughout our new book, Waiting for the Punch. And one, of the, and, and one of the great things about the book is that we could take someone like President Obama and put him in conversation with other people who have been on the show, actors, comedians, directors, and the president, all talking about the same thing, a theme in the book. So here's a, a great example of that from Chapter 5 of Waiting for the Punch, Words to Live By from the WTF Podcast. This is Paul Thomas Anderson, Jim Gaffigan, Bob Odenkirk, and President Barack Obama all talking about parenting. My mom and my dad had four kids, me and my three sisters, and yeah. then my dad had a first marriage where he had five. Kids. Really? So he had nine kids total. How many kids you got? Four. Is that just something you did because you grew up like that? Probably. I mean, it's nice to have a lot of kids running around the house. Really makes you keep, feel good, right? Yeah. It's like having a warm fire. And every once in a while, it's like throwing a bag of cats into a warm fire. Sure. I mean, it's, it could be a nightmare, but it's the best i think we've been culturally told that it's weird i think that people have been told that like by the way when you think about it if someone says i have six cats you yeah. think they're crazy yeah but what if someone really enjoys six cats and their apartment isn't covered with cat that's, turds? that's a long shot and you know there's something about um you know i i make a decent living so it's as long as i can afford yeah. A decent cheeseburger. I'm all right. It's not like I need a boat. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's how I always describe it. I'm like, oh, you don't know. I can't get my boat. It's like, so I'm going to be balder a year earlier. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh. Uh, well, what you're saying is that you'll do you know, whatever is necessary for the kids and you love the kids. And and what I get from these kids yeah. is, is immeasurable. And I know it sounds like a rationalization, no, 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 but rationalization. it's amazing. Well, and how old are your kids? Uh, they're 9 and 11. Wow. Yeah, they're growing up. It's great. You like it? It's nice, yeah. It's nice that they're getting older because uh, um, the other option is they pass away <laughs> at a young age. <laughs> um, Do you? Did you find it? No, it's great that they grow up because life gets easier, I think. The biggest fun I've had is watching my girls grow up, and, yeah. and they are—they uh, are magnificent. I, look, hopefully, every parent feels the way I do about my daughters. Yeah, um, but I think they are spectacular. And when Michelle and I came into office, the biggest worry we had was: is this going to be some weird thing for them? And are they going to grow yeah. up with an attitude, or are they going to? 
uh, think that everybody eats off of China. <laughs> right, right. And uh, are they? And it, you know, it turns <laughs> out that <laughs> they've just become. Uh, they're kind. They're thoughtful. They treat everybody with respect. They uh, don't have any kind of airs. Uh, they're confident, but without being cocky. Mm-hmm. Um, they've got great friends. They've been able to, uh, you know, they're not stuck in the bubble the same way I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they go to the mall. They have sleepovers. They go to prom. You know, Malia's started to drive. Um you know they're, they're they're doing great. So my biggest fun has been watching them grow up. Now, unfortunately, they're now hitting the age where they still love me, but they think I'm completely boring. Yeah. And so they'll come in, pat me on the head, talk to me for ten minutes, and then they're gone all weekend, right? <laughs> yeah. And they break my heart. And so now I've got to start thinking, well, what's what's re- what's going to replace that fun? It's why it's wild to hear to hear it all, and then to read it all is even more intense I, I can't explain how how much i love the book uh, we put together that was paul thomas anderson jim gaffigan bob odenkirk and president barack obama as you'll read in the parenting chapter of waiting for the punch you can pre-order your copy now and when you upload your receipt to our pre-order site we'll send you a special waiting for the punch book plate signed by me that you can stick right on the inside cover of your book. Just go to WTFPod.com and click on book at the top of the page or click on the cover of the book anywhere on the site. There's also a link in my newsletter and on the WTF social media pages. Dig it. All right, so look, uh, global warming, the end of the world. Uh, is it happening? I, I would say that most intelligent people, and I mean that, uh, for most intelligent people, the jury is in. It's happening, and uh, we have something to do with it. Knowing what to do about it uh, as an individual, as a person who just is living life, yeah, that's 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 trickier. And I'll talk to to uh, to Al Gore about that and about other things. But I just don't I don't know what it's going to take. I was in Florida less than a year ago at my mother's in Hollywood. And we got home late at night, and the streets along the uh, of the ocean were were filled with water. I'd never seen it before. I don't know when that started happening. I asked my mother, when did that start happening? Uh, and she goes, I don't know. It just happens now. It's some sort of tidal thing. No, it's it's water levels rising. And I know some of you, probably not many people that listen to my show are saying like, no, 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 that's not what's happening. Hannity says it's actually the sand rising and that some of the buildings are too heavy. That's all, you know, now it's a cyclical thing. Sand rises. It's not global warming. So, you know, just stop. Don't be crazy liberal with this. You know, what's so terrible if we, you know, if the water moves in a little bit, if we add more sand, that's what Hannity says. More sand will solve the problem. Yeah, but it it is an issue, and I I don't uh, I don't it, it's it's terrifying on a lot of levels. If you read that New York Magazine piece, uh, you know about the the worst the worst scenario. You know the 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 absolute worst that can happen. Just like uh, the permafrost melting and releasing prehistoric microbes and bacteria that uh, that the human animals never had to uh, build an immunity to just uh, apocalyptic viral bugs just waiting in the ice 
Is that a possibility? I guess it's a possibility. No, no. Hannity says those bugs aren't even there. He says that, you know, they're not dangerous. They were only dangerous to dinosaurs. And we're we're stronger than dinosaurs. Yeah, no, that's that's liberal bullshit, the bug thing. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's scary. And it's real. And I don't know what it'll take. I don't know what it'll take to get people to believe it. And I don't know what to do about it all the time. And I, I don't even have a horse in the race. I got no kids. You know, I, I mean, yeah, obviously there's part of me that was like, I would have preferred this to all this shit that's happened. And that is happening every fucking day in this country to never have happened or to at least, at least have happened after I had shuffled off the mortal coil because I'm a little selfish. Didn't want to deal, don't want to deal, but now we have to deal. That's the bottom line. But, I, you know, Mr. Gord does have a, some practical approach to, to what we can do. I just don't, what, does the sky have to catch on fire? Like, oh my God, oh my God, the sky is on fire. Oh, fuck. This is bad. God, what, it, the sky's on fire. That's got to be, that's bad. Oh, no, no, Hannity says it's normal. It's happened before, I think, uh, once or twice in, like, India in 1902. Sky caught fire, and then right after that, it rained really uh, hard for a few days. No problem. That's, you know, Hannity says it's part of the, it's a cycle. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. See, you know, how long do apocalypses last? Hannity says the apocalypse is like, it's a two or three day thing, then we're out of it. Part of the cycle. Anyway, this was a, it was a, an honor and it's always exciting to talk to, uh, to people uh, who have had a very high place in politics. And uh, I want to mention that the documentary, An Inconvenient Sequel, Truth to Power, is now playing in New York and LA. It opens wide. This Friday, August 4th. Oh, before we start this conversation, I do I do need to tell you that that the pocket knife that uh, Vice President Gore is referring to right at the beginning of our conversation is the same knife the United States Secret Service would not let me keep in the garage when Obama was in here. Same knife. I didn't tell Al Gore that, though. This is me and Al Gore talking. <laughs> That is a mean-looking pocket knife. Yeah. I, you know, I just have, like, I don't know where that... I just have stuff around. In case people want to play with stuff. <laughs> Sometimes people do. Vice President Al Gore is in my garage. That's it. This, you know, you're the only... Uh, just you and Obama. That was it. For the politicians. You're it. Really? Yeah. Well, I'm honored. Yeah. Uh, it's a much easier uh, visit. There, You know, we don't have yeah, to. Yeah, well, he came the helicopter uh, <laughs> route, and uh, I got the full experience. Yes, it's, you did. It, you drove. It's you kind, of hard to, kind of hard to get here. Do you like uh, do you like coming out to L.A.? I love coming out to L.A. Yeah. I, one of my daughters lives here. Oh, yeah? Kristen Gore is uh-huh. a screenwriter. Oh, really? Out here. Yeah. Oh, so you're here a lot. Yeah, well, yeah. N- yeah, good bit. <laughs> She's married to Damien Kulash of OK Go. Have you ever heard their They're, music, seen their music videos? Uh, I haven't. Are they? I'm old, though. I'm uh, getting older. I don't know, you know what's well, go, going go on. Go check out it. OK uh, Go? Yeah. They did one in Zero Gravity. You oh, probably really? saw it. Floating yeah. around? <laughs> yeah, that's fun. Anyway, so I come out here to see them. Yeah. And, uh, 
Participant Media is yeah. out here and Paramount, and yeah. they've made this uh, the sequel. Yeah, this an inconvenient movie. sequel. Truth to Power. Truth yeah. to Power. An inconvenient sequel. Truth to Power. Wait, now, like when you were thinking about titles, what happened to Wake Up Dummies? <laughs> <laughs> what do I got to do, you idiots? Yeah, well, <laughs> we discarded that one there. <clears throat> Well, let me. I want to come. I kind of circle around to this because we were talking a little bit in the house. Now, the the things I've watched recently are that ten episode uh, documentary from Ken Burns in Vietnam, and yeah. I've watched the uh, Inconvenient sequel, Truth to Power, your uh, your movie, and I'm watching uh, you know uh, current politics news unfold. Yeah, and I I just think it's it's interesting when I I sort of looked at uh, you know some of your biographical history. That that there was it actually says in the information that I read that um you wrote a thesis at Harvard about television's impact on the constitutional system and the relationship between the three branches of power. Yeah, I haven't been asked about that in a long time. But it's like the the dates were sort of interesting. It was like from nineteen forty seven to nineteen sixty nine. Right. I wrote it and I finished it in sixty nine. So that explains one date and. <laughs> The the other the other was when it really first started with television. Well, I think that was what what's interesting to me is that you know, given the you know all the work you put in you know uh, previous to being vice president and and being vice president to to sort of expanding the role of technology in our lives that you know these questions are I would imagine that you were asking in the thesis are still very relevant today with the internet and everything else. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'll I'll give you the short version. Yeah. I don't want to spend too much time on it but uh, no, we'll get but, to everything we've got time. yeah um you know i think that we've had three big changes in the information ecosystem yeah. in which our democracy uh is placed and of course the the printing press 500 years ago yeah really created the reality that gave rise to america in the first place the feudal system was broken up when uh, the masses uh, could become literate and gain access to information previously limited to elites. Libraries were had you know twelve to fifteen books written in a language only the monks copying them could understand, right. basically. And then the printing press just exploded uh, that old feudal order and distributed knowledge to uh, everybody and. Over time, that changed everything and led to the dream that inspired uh, America's founders. And then uh, the electronic communications uh, revolution started with the telegraph and radio was a big deal. And then the addition of the picture made television the big kahuna. Yeah. And it displaced print. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that changed the way our democracy operated big time gatekeepers uh, all of a sudden controlled access to the public uh, forum yeah and charged tons of money and so the big donors including corporate donors uh, got in the driver's seat and controlled uh, had w got way too much control over who was elected and who wasn't and yeah. now the third uh, wave is coming in of which you are a a part um the internet actually aggregate ad revenue on the internet surpassed revenue to television uh, sure. broadcast cable satellite yeah. for the first time this year really yeah the big advertisers still prefer television but that's changing too and and uh, there are no gatekeepers anymore you don't have to pay a ton of money to get your show out to whoever that's right wants to hear it right and more and more do 
uh, and individual bloggers now can have an impact. And in a way, it kind of recreates the architecture of the print ecosystem in that a, a single individual who takes the time to gather the best available evidence and think through it and yeah. reaches out and connects with others who share that point of view can use knowledge as a source of power once again and displace money and force of arms, which money has been hacking our democracy and still is. But, you know, the Sanders campaign last year, whether you agree with his positions yeah. on this or that or not, uh, he proved that you can now run a, a big, credible, potentially successful campaign without any special interest contributions or big fat cat donors just by reaching out to individuals on the Internet. And if that model can take hold, then we can revivify the, the dream of our founders and make American democracy work again. That, well, that's true. But I think that the, the, there's also the, the dark side of that, you know, the, the sharing the point of view you know uh, that little echo chambers yeah. right the bubbles yeah. the echo chambers the uh, dispersion of misinformation of bad information to to uh, ignorant or uneducated or angry people on either side uh, can you know can create tremendous problems yeah that's definitely that's definitely the case it was also true of the first phase of uh, the print medium yeah, also right A and you know before mass advertising uh, yeah. subscriptions were yeah. the main revenue for newspapers and they were echo chambers also and you go back and look at the campaigns in 1800 and right. uh, in that era and boy it was uh, even more vicious than anything you see today exactly well, yeah but they didn't have twitter then if you really wanted to <laughs> if you really wanted to troll somebody you had to go to their front yard and <laughs> and you had to yell at their door well pamphlets played a big role oh, i guess that's true right yeah. so and this is stuff you were thinking about in 1969 uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's always been, you know, you're in terms of information and democracy. This was this was always y your interest, even before environmentalism. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, both were uh, of interest. But yeah, Marshall McLuhan was a big deal in my upbringing. Yeah. The medium is the message. Yeah. Among other things. And uh, his predecessors, Daniel Bell and others. And uh, I just kind of got tuned into that and found it fascinating. And uh I've always uh, really been interested in that stuff. And when you went to, when you in, enlisted, I, I, I don't, the, the story about you in Vietnam was uh, you didn't have to go, right? I could have found a fancy way to get out of it, uh, yeah. as certain other people And your father, <laughs> as, a, as he was a, a senator or a congressman at that point? He was a senator. He, he was running again. Yeah, the coming year he was. And yeah. he was not for the war. He was one of the most prominent opponents of the Vietnam War. Primarily because he thought it was unwinnable? No, um, because he thought it was based on a lie. He always said that his the one vote he regretted the most was for the Tonkin Gulf resolution. Uh -huh. They all found out soon after that it was a, a false uh, uh, narrative that was used as an excuse to provoke the war. And he, I, I, he came to believe it was not uh, winnable without, yeah. uh, you know, destroying the whole of Southeast Asia. But I was really proud of him. I was a college student yeah. uh, during that time. But the reason I volunteered to go um, is that my upbringing was in two places, the big city of Washington, D.C., where my father served there. And then a small town in Tennessee, and that was my emotional, spiritual home always, still is now. Yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, everybody knew who was on the draft board. Everybody knew who was up uh, in each month. And yeah. I just couldn't feel right about uh, using some of the strategies that were available in the big cities. And, you know, if you had connections sure. with your family. And, yeah. And, uh, and I just felt like I couldn't imagine some uh, guy, one of my friends in Carthage, Tennessee, going in my place, getting killed. What would I say to his family? Yeah. It, it, you know, it sounds corny, but that's really was it. And the fact that my father was going to be a candidate the following year as a Viet, as an opponent of the war, made brought it kind of in sharp relief for me, too. And you thought that by going, it would uh, it would provide what? For his, in terms of his uh, uh, his campaign, I didn't have any illusions that it would make uh, a big difference uh-huh. either way. But I wouldn't have felt right about uh, doing, you know, getting out of it in a, oh, in right, a right. kind of a sneaky way. And uh, and if that should have contributed to his defeat, I, that would make it even worse for me. I guess the reason I'm I'm, I'm starting here is because like I know that you know, we talked a bit in the in the other room about how you were not you know you were of that generation that protested the war and then yeah. you know you put that uniform on. I'm sure you felt that come back at you. You know the 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 contempt from the people uh, other students. You know I actually did I, I did feel that and it was quite a shock. I. I went uh, through basic training, and before I went to, uh, I had a you know a, a few days off after basic training, and I went back to see my friends in Boston where yeah. I'd been in college, and my hair was all cut off, and I was in the uniform, and wow, the uh, reaction on the sidewalk yeah. <laughs> was really something. It you was felt quite, it, yeah. And it what was, did, how that how that make you think? I mean, what did that what did that change in you to see both sides of it like that? Yeah, it it did. It really it 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 caused me to to think differently about the divisions on the war. I, I never changed my opposition to the war. Sure. And then when I got to Vietnam and got to know as friends a lot of the people in South Vietnam, that uh, that was a big uh, change too. Because it was all of a sudden a lot more complicated. Again, I was still opposed to the war. But, for example, some of the Catholics in South Vietnam were really terrified of what would happen if the North Vietnamese took over. Uh, And, you know, you have to take that into account. It was still a really horrible mistake. the, The second worst policy mistake uh, foreign policy mistake in the history that went on for a our, decade of our country yeah i mean the invasion of iraq was clearly the the worst uh, mistake we're still living with that more than a decade later yeah and that the that that one would have been on your watch had you been uh, elected yeah and i like to think uh, a lot of things would have been different but yeah. uh, no point uh, crying <laughs> over spilled milk <laughs> yeah it, it, but you know the thing that struck me about the documentary was it seems to me that you know the that the anti-war movement and the progressive movement and everything that happened in the late 60s and early 70s is still the dividing line today that there 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 there's the right and the conservative movement and then what happened against that war really out of that you know, came, you know, new progressive uh, politics, environmentalism. It all seemed to happen around the same time. Yeah, I think for you and me and yeah. people who lived through those years, it may have looked like the starting point of that, but I think that left-right division goes back much further. Oh, yeah? Yeah. 
Yeah, well, you've done the homework. Like, how far back? It's just always been there, huh? Well, Hamilton and Jefferson uh, were on <laughs> right. opposite sides of yeah. a lot of things. And uh, uh, back to the English Revolution before that. And I'm sure somebody more learned than me would take it even farther back. And what made you, when you come back from uh, Vietnam, You were you, what were you doing there? What, what capacity were you uh, serving? I carried a pencil and an M16. I oh, yeah, a, you had I the M16? I was an army journalist uh, yeah. with orders to travel... Uh, all over the country, uh, writing stories about whatever the combat engineers were were doing, uh-huh. and I, I went all over the country. It was it was really, really very interesting. And you come back and you decide what what made you decide to go into politics? Well, I didn't. I thought politics would be the last thing I ever did. Really? Yeah. Since my dad was in it uh, as a as a little kid, I thought I'd do what he did, and he he was he and my mom both were heroes to me. But when I saw the Vietnam policies, and even you know Johnson, and then after that was Nixon, I thought, wow, I want nothing to do with this gig. Yeah, and I thought I would be a journalist. Uh, uh, the army actually, I, you know, I went in as a private. They made me a, yeah. a journalist and. Uh, I wrote stories over there that caught the attention of my hometown editor, and when I got back to Tennessee, he called me and offered me a job, $95 a week, mm-hmm. and um, so I, I started doing uh, general assignment and then worked my way up to police beat and then city hall reporting. We called it the Metro Beat. Yeah. Became an investigative uh, journalist before that uh, title had any cachet. Did you love it at all? I absolutely loved it. I absolutely loved it, and I got uh, I, I started writing stories about corruption in uh-huh. uh, local and state government. And my editor was kind of a pioneer, a guy named John Sigenthaler, and he sent me to a school for investigative journalism. And I'm telling you this story because it's relevant to what's going on today. It was in December of 1972. Nixon had been reelected in a landslide. But these two young hotshot reporters at the Washington Post, uh, Woodward and Bernstein, had written these amazing stories. And the the group of us from all over the country who were digging into investigative journalism were talking about whether or not investigative reporting was dead because nothing was happening. Nobody seemed to care about these incredible stories yeah. and we thought oh well maybe in the age of television nobody really takes the time to read this stuff and connect the dots anymore but then three months later all hell broke loose and you know the spiraling downward of nixon led to his resignation uh and the the reason i bring it up of course is that right now yeah a lot of your listeners a lot of people all over the country are are connecting dots on their own with the Russia story and the Trump White House and all of that. And I hear some of the same questions. Does nobody <laughs> does nobody care about how grotesque this is? And underneath the news cycle is an investigation. And it, like the Watergate investigation, it, it may be following its own rhythm, hidden from public view, as right. it should be. Yeah. And when they get a a package of connected dots and surface uh, what they've found, who knows what's going to happen. It may well be that the next several months are going to be a challenging time for 
our country. It sure feels like that, doesn't it? Yes, it, it feels like that to me. And, yeah. I, and I, you know, ha- having you come over here uh, to talk to me, you know, there, knowing you know what you've seen both inside politics as a young man, but also being on the inside of difficult times. Yeah. Uh, do do you do you worry for our system? Uh, y- yes and no. Uh, yes, because you you know, as a citizen of our country, we all have a duty to be alert and diligent. But no, because I think we have more resilience than we sometimes realize. Yeah, the courts have already blocked some of the crazy things he's proposed, and the Congress is even this Congress is failing to support uh, some of the yeah. other things he's trying to do. And the state governments and city governments, you know, Jerry Brown here in California is a hero on climate. Yeah. After he withdrew from Paris, the states and cities and business leaders uh, filled the gap and said, we're still in the Paris Agreement. We're going to meet the commitments anyway. So I, I think there's a lot of resilience. Just today, some of the Republican senators who, by my lights, have been way too slow to speak up against Trump are all of a sudden saying, hey, don't fire Sessions, don't fire Mueller. It, it, as Lindsey Graham said, it'll be holy hell. I was glad to hear him say that. And you know these guys. You worked with yeah, these guys. Yeah, they yeah. were all there when you were there. Yeah, a lot of them were. I was in the House with John McCain and then in the Senate with John McCain. And um, I know Lindsey Graham very well and most of the others. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I could be wrong, but I think they're beginning to uh, find uh, a real. Uh, source of strength in, uh, in in standing up to Trump. Well, you did cover some of that, uh, you know, the, the state government, uh, you know, stepping up to fill the gap environmentally in the film a little bit. There's that, that governor from yeah. Texas, right? Or is he a governor? No, he's a mayor. mayor. The mayor, mayor of right. Georgetown, Texas, yeah. Mayor Dale Ross. Yeah. Conservative Republican, Trump supporter in the heart of oil company, uh, country, country yeah. the, the, the reddest city in the reddest county in Texas. And but he's a CPA, and he did the numbers, and he said, you know, if we switch to 100% solar and wind, we're going to save money. And they've done it now, and the electric bills are going down, and the air is cleaner. Isn't that interesting? So it took economics, not science, but economics. Right, right. and he says in the movie, you know, you don't need scientists. Isn't it just better not to put stuff in the air? Right. You know, okay, that works for me. Sure. And that, that is a trend that you see uh, picking up speed? It- absolutely, absolutely. And it's driven by a couple of big changes in the last decade since the first movie, An Inconvenient uh-huh. Truth, came out. Number one, the climate-related extreme weather events are way more common, way more serious. There are 100 fires going on right now as we're talking. Uh, these rain bombs and mudslides and droughts and the sea level rise. I mean, people are, Mother Nature has entered the debate. Turns out she's uh, more persuasive than any of us. And that's the first big change. The second change is the solutions are here now. Yeah. The the cost reductions for electricity from solar and wind are just so dramatic. It's almost like computer chips, mobile phones, flat screen TVs. And when they scale up the production, the cost declines increase. And now in... And jobs. There's new jobs. Absolutely. Solar jobs are now growing 17 times faster than other jobs in the economy. And the single fastest growing job is wind turbine technician. So this shift away from dirty fossil fuels is going to be a big economic boost in the in the best way well let me ask you a question as somebody that was in the house in the senate the vice president 
you know this 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 fossil fuel paradigm this oil paradigm with all their lobbying and with their you know corporate power yeah you know how at this point i mean you, you know it seems that you, you know what we're obviously the sort of one step forward two step back thing is 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 relevant and happens but it just seems that you, you know, we're back into the you know the full-on petroleum paradigm with this administration that they're like they're, they even with the progress and even with some of the oil companies moving into cleaner yeah. energy yeah. that there's still this need to gut the government and and exploit you know anything we can in the name of fossil fuels you know philosophically from this administration so how how do you you know how did you reckon with that when you saw it you know in congress and the senate and as a vice president what what do we do now with this almost spiteful return to the oil paradigm yeah it's a it's it's a problem and they have a lot of power uh they're among the biggest campaign donors they have these huge lobbying teams and even beyond that they've done something really despicable they took the playbook of the tobacco companies who decades ago were confronted with an existential threat to the cigarette business by the Surgeon General. Yeah, uh, the doctors and scientists linked up the connection between cigarettes and lung cancer and other diseases. And so the tobacco companies hired actors and dressed them up as doctors and put them in front of cameras and a teleprompter where they just falsely reassured people that that uh, they'd say, "Hi, I'm a doctor, and there are no health problems connected to cigarettes." It, it was really awful. And the large carbon polluters like uh, the Koch brothers and ExxonMobil and others have hired the same PR firms, uh, and they're using the same blueprint, and they're putting out these phony uh, pseudoscientists and creating false doubts. There was a great book that documented this called The Merchants of Doubt, uh, and and they've spent over a billion dollars trying to pull the wool over people's eyes. uh, Brainwash them. Yeah, absolutely. Psychops. But, yeah, well put. But people are are beginning to see through it in larger well, numbers because they can't breathe, or their 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 beachfront uh, condo in Florida is underwater. <laughs> yeah, I saw. I was down in Miami on a sunny day watching fish from the ocean swim in the streets, and I mean, I'm 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 being I know. literally my, serious. My mother lives in Hollywood, and one okay. night we were just staying down there, and there was water. Like, there was ocean water in the streets, and I'd never seen that before. And I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, yeah, it seems to happen sometimes. High tide. Yeah. <laughs> high tide. Very high tide. And, well, the sea level has risen enough so that the high tide now floods a lot of the streets. And it's true in Fort Lauderdale. It's true in Norfolk, Virginia, and Annapolis, Maryland, all up the coast, Galveston, Texas. And it's much worse in places like Bangladesh and the Maldives and, uh, you know, uh, Calcutta Why is and it Mumbai. worse there? Well, because there are many more people who live in low-lying oh, right. okay. coastal areas and don't have the money to build seawalls or protect themselves, uh, and so we're, we're we're the world is girding for these larger numbers of climate refugees. But in any case, because of the impacts that are getting so much more serious, people are waking up to this, and because the alternatives are now cheaper, as we talked about in Texas. Uh, people are saying, okay, we can solve it. We don't have to get into the science of it. We don't have to use the words global warming. We can just say, okay, let's get cleaner air and create jobs and save money all at the same time. But you know, not to be cynical or to be realistic in the sense that 
you know, when you talk about the Koch brothers or where you talk about ExxonMobil or when you talk about these these PR firms that that, yeah, that yeah. twist it, I mean, they live on the same planet. Yeah. I mean, like, what is the in 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 your experience? What is their end game? Are they like, well, we're gonna we're gonna build a uh, some sort of uh, new suit that we can all wear when it gets too hot to live? Like, where does does capitalism see the 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 climate change and what the world is going to look like as opportunity? I mean, what where's their conscience in this? Well, I, you know, I think that some of them go to great lengths to avoid engaging their conscience. Uh, a great uh, investigative journalist over a hundred years ago, uh-huh. Upton Sinclair, right? The meatpacking thing, yeah, yeah, the jungle, the jungle. He, he uh, and uh, and other things. Yeah. He was great. He he wrote a sentence that I think applies. He he says it is. He wrote it is difficult to get a man to understand something if his income depends upon him not understanding it. <laughs> and I think you know we human nature makes all of us vulnerable to stuff like that. But at some point, you got to shake that off and be honest with yourself. And a lot of them are just not. And, you know, who was the movie character that said greed is good? Oh, yeah, from uh, Wall Street, Wall Street. Michael Douglas. Gecko. Yeah, yeah. Gecko. Gordon Gecko. Gordon Gecko. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there are blinders of a kind uh, when greed is the only thing occupying somebody's mind. And power. And, yeah, and these, these carbon polluters are are hell-bent to squeeze as many more years as they can out of a business plan that relies on using the the sky as an open sewer. Well, I but but there's got to be discussions in those you know that you've provoked or within these corporate realms of them saying like, well, why can't we diversify? I mean, I, I haven't some of these larger energy companies that were once petroleum based <clears throat> are are they not doing cleaner uh, things? Well, two two points. First, yeah. first of all, the L.A. Times, uh, Inside Climate News, Colum- yeah. Columbia Journalism School, they they there was a Pulitzer Prize given for the work last year, maybe it was two years ago, uh-huh. where they went back and looked at how companies like Exxon Mobil put their scientists on this task decades ago. They knew. They totally knew. It's like Vietnam. Yeah, well, they 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 figured it out, and wherever the rising seas affected the location of drilling rigs, they made the adjustments. They planned out how they were going to take advantage of the melting polar ice cap, and uh, and yet there came a time when they made a very cynical, immoral business decision to to consciously, deliberately confuse the public by saying falsely this problem isn't real and they gave lots of money to these climate denier groups to go out and and create manufacture false doubts it's part of the business plan i get it and yeah. it's really unethical of course and the, and the problem is like i was trying to think about you know how i felt when i watched a movie and i saw the first movie and you know i, I don't know that i changed my life dramatically after i watched the first movie i i felt worse yeah, you know, I, I think I used a, a less plastic. I'm very aware of uh, of, of the bags and, and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah. But in terms of what I do as a person, and then when I watch this, this movie, and I, I can see as a 53-year-old man the weather changing and everything yeah. else, you, you know, what why what what do I do and what do, how do I deal with this information? Yeah. And and I think a lot of people are just sort of like, yeah, I kind of know what's happening, but I don't I don't want to, I just don't, don't want to deal with it. Yeah, well... <laughs> 
you know, when I grew up in the South, the, the civil rights movement was gaining momentum. Same kind of thing. People who knew it was wrong to discriminate on the basis of skin color would say, you know, what, what, what do I do? But then the laws began to change. Yeah. People won the conversation. It became clear. What's different now yeah. is that it's much easier for people to be a part of the solution. You can, you can contact one of the solar energy companies here in California, yeah. and here's the deal they'll make you. They'll say to you, we'll put solar panels on your roof, yeah. and the next day uh, your bills will drop 20%. Yeah. How much will it cost me? Zero. They'll do it for nothing. As an American, my first thought is like they're going to stick me somehow. No, uh, <laughs> no. the The laws in California make it possible for them to make a profit and give you savings on your. Oh, because they have a deal with the electric company here, right? They, there's some sort of. Uh, uh, no, the work? electric utilities have been resistant to this, uh-huh. but because of the people of California having a, a state government that gets it. And by the way, the subsidies for the fossil fuels are 40 times bigger than the subsidies for renewables. But it's changing now because the cost of these renewables is coming down so fast. Now, uh, Tesla is about to introduce a consumer version of the electric car. Uh, all, all major car manufacturers are beginning to introduce electric vehicles. India, this is great. Uh, didn't get a big splash in the Western news. Yeah. Two months ago, India announces... Within only 13 years, 100% of their cars and trucks are going to have to be electric vehicles. Really? It's incredible. India and China are closing hundreds of coal-burning plants, vastly expanding solar and wind, and they're creating jobs there. We need to get with it and, 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 and push back the resistance from the big oil companies, gas companies, coal companies, and coal-burning utilities. What, what, what do you? How do you... You know, outside of this bubble uh, effect and and a certain type of uh, of, of specific anger in this country, w- like you know this whole you know uh, tr- President Trump is very focused on coal and and barely anyone's using it anymore. Yeah, like it's a dying paradigm. Yeah, it is. And the idea to hang some sort of national pride or <laughs> yeah. or future progress on it is peculiar. Yeah, and and obviously you know the 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 nomination of of heads of uh you know departments who are are specifically there to undermine the department is is, but that's a republican tactic that's not new to to make the government ineffective and small yeah but what is it about people that are like you know who are literally like you know it's all who are the people that are screaming it's a myth and why are they doing that when it's so obvious what what do they get where do they stand to gain well, some of them are paid to do it. Right. Uh, some of them are motivated by these carbon polluters who make tons of money from it. Uh, and where, for, first of all, the coal industry is dying for sure. Yeah. Uh, and we got to take care of the coal miners. Yeah. Uh, most of their jobs were eliminated by the coal companies with automation a long time ago. But, and by the way, the famous coal museum in uh, Kentucky, in yeah. the heart of coal country, just switched to solar electricity. Oh, that's in the movie, to, right? No, yeah, not yeah, in the I movie. Actually, but I it, read but that it, somewhere else. But yeah. they're, save, they're right. saving money. But I think I think one of the reasons why <laughs> that's irony on the good side. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Trump made the coal thing a, a big deal was that he benefited from some broad, widespread anger on the part of 
people who have watched middle class wages stagnate sure. for decades mm-hmm. and they're angry about the current pattern of globalization and outsourcing and now intelligent automation is coming in and making some of that uh, the job losses but even that's not a worse. partisan issue no but it's not but when you have a demagogue who comes in and says i'll take you back to the good old days we'll recreate the past we're going to go back to the age of coal. Well, we're not going back to the age of coal. The the market capitalization of the coal industry in this country has gone down almost 90% in the last decade. Yeah. Last year, almost three-quarters of all the new electricity generation in the U.S. uh, came from solar and wind. The rest came from gas, 0.2% from coal. It's it's, it's going. It's dirty. It's terrible. Yeah, and I guess that, you know, the the – the paradigm that he's trying to recreate you know, is not just economic; it's also racial. Like it's it's about oh, yeah, yeah, white yeah. nationalism that you know you grew up with somewhere yeah, yeah, down yeah, there. Yeah. All of us did. Yeah, and and that you know, I mean, geez, when your dad was in office, the South was was still Democrats a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, when I ran yeah. for Congress for the House of Representatives the first time in 1976, my race was in the primary. There was not even a Republican on the ballot in the general election. It was practically illegal for him to run. I'm just joking when saying it that way. But now uh, it's it, you know most of the uh, public offices are held by Republicans. And what happened when you met with uh, uh, with the Emperor Trump in uh, in Ivanka? Or uh, yeah, did you meet with Ivanka? Was it or, or- met with her first, and then met and spent time with the then President Elect Trump and. How did you find him as a person? Had you met him before? I had met him before, yes. Uh, he, he never supported me, but uh, uh, any elected official that goes through New York for years and years will run in, would have run into him in those years, and I did. Uh, and I actually had um, a chance to – he came to my office in the Senate uh, on, on uh, professional football business when he had that uh, USFL team way back in the day, the oh, yeah? Jersey Generals. And I've protected the privacy of my conversations with him. That was not the only conversation. It continued when he was in the White House. And my focus was on trying to convince him to stay in the Paris Agreement. And I thought, really, that there was a chance he would come to his senses. But I was wrong. And do you think that they are his senses that he came to, or he's being he's not really making those decisions for himself? Well, if you're asking me to uh, give you a theory of Donald Trump's mind, I don't have one. But I'll answer your question by saying I, I think that he's thrown his lot in with this rogues gallery of climate deniers. And he, he seems to uh, to think he can succeed as a president by just being president of the right-wing fringe of the Republican Party and the the ones even to the right of the Republican Party and that he doesn't need to care about the rest of the country. I I think that's a profound mistake, but that's uh, the way he's acting. Well, yeah, and even the, the, it seems like even the worst of them, uh, whatever side you're on, at least paid some lip service to unifying the country somehow. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a a, a demonic and and frightening thing to be, uh, you know, shamelessly uh, screw you to more than half of the people of the country. Yeah, you, you, you use one word in that sequence that 
give me a little pause, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, one of the saving graces is that it's uh, his uh, regime is a mixture of malevolence and incompetence, uh-huh. and so he can't. Re- he's not seemingly able to do all of the bad things that he sets out to do. Now, when you now have you taken this movie to uh, to Washington? We had a pre-screening in D.C. Uh, last week. Yeah. A lot of Republicans come out. And- <laughs> you obviously <You're> read something. <laughs> we invited, we invited, uh, we invited everybody, and uh, none of the Republican members of Congress came. Guys, you know, but uh, yeah, some of them, yeah. But uh, you know, they're they're now in a position, the Republicans, where their main uh, their their main concern when it comes to re-election is not about the general election it's about getting a tea part an ultra conservative uh primary opponent yeah uh and and so th- they're not they're not uh, really worried about uh trying to reach out to the middle a few are some of them are but the the way the congressional district lines are drawn now is is another part of this problem i'm sure you're quite aware of that uh and and, and you, you talk. We talked about the echo chambers on the internet. These uh, congressional districts, some of them become echo chambers, where the only thing Republicans have to fear is somebody way to the right of them. Mm. And how do you get through to them with a nonpartisan message of global uh, catastrophe? Well, it's not only um, a message about catastrophe. The risks are unprecedented for sure. But the opportunities are also unprecedented, and the the cost savings that I mentioned earlier. I'll give yeah. you a quick example. Okay, one of the founders of the National Tea Party movement is a woman in Atlanta, Georgia, named Debbie Dooley, and the Koch brothers uh, reached out to her group, the Atlanta Tea Party, uh, and uh, wanted her to support them to support legislation to slow down solar and block solar. But she had put solar panels on her house, and she said, what's this? And so she joined with the Sierra Club and the Atlanta Tea Party did to form a new organization called the Green Tea Party, and they defeated (laughs) that legislation. And I saw her uh, uh, just recently uh, on TV just giving hell to the Koch brothers uh, uh, and, and the carbon polluters who she said are lying to people. And, you know, it's hard to find a more conservative person than Debbie Dooley. Well, yeah, because this is not, a, this shouldn't be a, a political correct. issue. Correct, correct, correct. So have you reached out to the Koch brothers to invest in green energy or in, 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 in clean energy, re- renewable energy? No, no, I, I have not. <laughs> I have not. Why, why can't that be part of their portfolio? Well, you know, some of these um, carbon polluters are, uh-huh. are really not interested in investing in things that will destroy their legacy business. But if, but if the legacy is already compromised, you know, by just the momentum of of planetary uh progress, you would think that, you know, they would hedge their bets a little bit at least. You know, there was a book that came out a few years ago called The Innovator's Dilemma, and it's a a, a, a little uh, uh nerdier way of making the same point that if you got a, a a business and it's based on a particular plan and somebody comes to you with a brand new idea for something that's cheaper and better and you're looking at it and you say, oh, wow, I could invest in this. And then you pause and say, 
but if I do, then it's going to destroy this business I've got going, and I've sunk all my assets into this legacy business, and I'm never going to make as much money with this new, better approach. And so what what some of them do is decide to just hang on and try to fool people and obscure the truth about it and keep making as much money for as long as they can from the old ways. And they try to kill that new business. That's correct. And that's what the electric utilities that are based on uh, burning coal and gas are trying to do to solar yeah. in states and cities around the country. And they've been doing that forever. I mean, here they don't have no public transport because of uh, the automobile industry early on. Right, there used to be you know subways and trains in L.A. and even trolleys. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's been going on since the beginning of this. Thing. Yeah, the the difference is these uh, carbon polluters have way more money than the, <laughs> their predecessors, and they they control a lot of politicians who will, when they say jump, they as the old saying goes, they say yes, sir. How high? Yeah. And when did you first start bringing this stuff up in in Congress? Right. Yeah, I had been um, fortunate when I was in college in the 60s yeah. to learn from a great professor from here in California. The guy's name was Roger Revelle. Uh-huh. He was the first scientist to measure CO2 in the atmosphere. And he's the one who opened my eyes to this. And yeah. some uh, seven, eight years after that, when I was elected to Congress, I asked what's going on with global warming, and nothing was. So I helped organize the first hearing on it. And I invited my professor to come and be the leadoff witness, and I thought it would have a big impact down there, but but it didn't. And that's when I first started asking myself, how can this be communicated more effectively so that I can recreate for others the aha moment that I had yeah. learning from this professor? And it's been a lifelong journey since then. And when you do something like that in Congress, is that like you invite other congressmen or they come to the chamber how does that work yeah well there are committees this was a subcommittee and i wasn't chairman of it but i got the chairman to let me do this uh and you schedule the hearing and the press comes and the witnesses are invited and there's a little crowd out there and the lobbyists will also come uh and uh, then you go through the day with uh, one witness after another and compile a report that's how it works and now you did, you stuck with this, though, and there was progress made with the the ozone issue. Absolutely, yeah. How did that, how did that unfold? Because we fixed that, right? Yeah, big success story. <laughs> and, and actually, Ronald Reagan was one of the reasons we fixed it. Margaret Thatcher, he respected a lot when she was the prime minister of England. Yeah. Uh, and she was a, uh, she had a degree in chemistry, and she understood this stuff. A couple of scientists uh, uh, from California, uh, Sherwood Rowland uh, uh, and Mario Molina, who Mexico City and uh, La Jolla, uh, they discovered the linkage between these chemicals called, forgive me, chlorofluorocarbons yeah. uh, that were used in a, for a lot of things, yeah. um, and the, the destruction of the stratospheric ozone layer. Notice, first of all, above Antarctica, where this huge hole started opening up, uh, every uh, September through uh, November, uh, and they said, oh, wow, this is these chemicals. So the politicians actually listened to the scientists. Maggie Thatcher got Ronald Reagan to listen. Uh, I was in the Senate back then. Was he hard to get to listen? Um, not for her. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that he <laughs> yeah. really respected her, and I think he had a, a science advisor who listened also. Uh-huh. And anyway, there was a negotiation in Montreal in 1987, and they passed a treaty. Three years later, it was toughened. 
And and that's a big success story. Yes, it it'll take some time for the full healing to to uh, to take place. Uh, maybe an, another seventy five to one hundred years, but it's already beginning. And and so that's a big success story. Here's the difference yeah. between that problem and and the climate crisis. Uh-huh. The chlorofluorocarbons they were used in you know for a while spray cans and air conditioning and uh, cleaning circuit boards, etc. But they were a very tiny part of the economy overall. Fossil fuels, by contrast, still supply more than 80% of all the energy the global economy uses. So dealing with fossil fuels is way harder. And yet we are doing it now. We are, we are seeing it. Um, the, uh, there was a, an oil minister in Saudi Arabia years ago who who said uh, the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones. It ended because something better came along. <laughs> and the oil age and the fossil fuel age is going to end not because they're in short supply, but because something better is now here, solar and wind. We get more energy from the sun in one hour than the entire global economy uses for a full year. So if we in- improve the fraction of that that we harvest and use productively, then you know we can replace fossil fuels. I, I guess it seems that when you say it like that, one of the things that scares aggressive capitalists who are part of the fossil fuel industry is they may not see a way to make a boatload of money off of that. Yes, but here's <laughs> yeah. the here's the a, a really big change. The Paris Agreement that we talked about earlier, yeah, in in uh, a year ago, December, huge historic deal. Virtually every country in the entire world agreed to phase out on a net basis global warming pollution by mid-century or as soon thereafter as possible. And it sent a powerful signal to all these companies and uh, and, and and to governments at the regional, local, national level. It, it is really a big deal. It's almost like the old saying, the train is leaving the station, are you on or not? Right. And every country, with very few exceptions, said, yeah, we're, we're, we're on. Uh, so now even some of the oil companies, we talked about this earlier, yeah. but in Europe, you take Total, a huge oil company in France, they're shifting massively to renewable energy. I don't expect ExxonMobil or the Koch brothers to do it because they're still determined to try to fool the American people into killing, so into trying to get them to kill solar, uh, and, ha- and they want to hang on to their old outdated business plan. So now, like when you have this uh, that big article that came out, what was it, New York Magazine? That you know, I I, I could barely read it because it, it was so terrifying. Mm. That you know, when you start thinking about uh, uh, climate plagues, like you know, the defrosting of ancient bacteria and uh, unbreathable air and complete economic destabilization, extinction, and these kind of things, uh, you know, I can see not unlike people not wanting to to really face the fact that they're going to die just as people, yeah. that the denial around confronting those possibilities has got to be part of the reason why people don't want to deal with this. You know, uh, yeah, I think that's right. Human nature is uh, what it is, and if something's unpleasant to think about, uh, many of us are eager to latch on to any evidence, even if it's uh, not true, that maybe we have plenty of time before we have to start worrying about it. And the, the magazine article you're talking about was a cover story in that magazine. Yeah. 
And boy, it was a hard hitting worst case projection piece. Yeah. Some of the scientists uh, took issue with it, but some others said, well, you know, let's hear all points of view on this. And this is a worst case deal. And maybe some of the facts are a little bit off, but we need to know if if things go really wrong, it could be really bad. Yeah. And by the way, the projections of the scientific group, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you'll hear people talk about the IPCC, they have been pretty cautious in the past. They do a very thorough job, but science is culturally conservative. They they you know really want to hedge their bets until they can lock everything down. But when you go back and look at what they projected in previous years, they have kind of lowballed some of these things. And yeah. Not to be misleading, they're trying to do the best job they can. But it is important to realize that there are, you know, what they call tail risks, uh, lower probability chances of it going uh, wrong in a, in a much worse than yeah. than uh, the mainstream projections. Now, I I always you know, default to optimism and hope because I think the hope is real and it's there. And despair can be paralyzing for people. Uh, You know, the old saying, denial ain't just a river in Egypt. Well, despair ain't just a tire in the trunk. It's a real force. And if you combine despair and hopelessness, you you get a, a type of nihilism. Yeah, that's right. Party on. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's uh that's a problem. Yeah, definitely. Because that that has some political momentum in the culture we're living in right now. Yeah, but I don't think it's the dominant uh, strain, uh, strain at all. Oh, I think just general apathy is probably more dominant. Well, I see a, a big uprising of progressive activism now. Oh, good. I really do. I, you know, there's a law of physics that sometimes operates in politics. Yeah. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think the reaction to Trump includes a, a lot of people saying hey i gotta get personally involved in this well okay well, that's a good place to go like you know you got this lovely book that come out with the uh came out with the movie an inconvenient sequel truth to power your action handbook yep now this is for everybody everybody of all ages of all ages and 100 percent of the proceeds for both the book and the movie go to the climate reality project to train climate activists yeah around the world so, yeah, the book is getting uh, a really good reception. And for anybody who wants to learn about the problem, the solutions, uh, this is it. And the last 40% of it is a, a guidebook for how you personally can be an effective activist. And and so let's start. So I guess the first step is buying the book. Yeah, learn, learning about it. And yeah. the book and the movie are good places to learn about it. And then what happens? Then what do you do? Then use your voice, first of all, and win the conversations on climate. I saw in the civil rights days how the conversations were won before the laws were changed. Then use your votes, and not only your votes, but play an active role as a citizen. I have been on the receiving end of this, so I'll tell you what works from my point of view. Uh If you go to a candidate running for office or an office holder representing you who wants to be reelected, you deliver a a two-part message. You've collected your friends, those on your social networks, and and the two-part message is, number one, Mr. Candidate, Miss Candidate, if you're with me on climate, I'm going to help you get reelected. I'll I'll be there for you. If you're wrong on climate, I I guarantee you I will not rest until I defeat you and get you kicked out of office. That two-part message, trust me, works. (laughs) Yeah. I talked to Al Franken. 
you know, a few times. Uh, you know, he wrote a book and you know, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, a giant of the Senate. Yeah, yeah, and he, you know, he tells a story about you. In, oh, in yeah. the book. Oh, I didn't know that. I haven't seen it he yet. He said, uh, you know, when he was getting beat up by uh, Coleman's campaign, yeah. he said he called you and asked you, like, you know, like, God, they get pretty mean. It gets pretty pretty tough out here. How'd you handle it? And you said, uh, suck it up. <laughs> <laughs> Al's a great friend. And by the way, when I ran for president yeah. in 2000, nobody did more than Al. And so I returned the favor and I really went all out for him. And then he had a recount of his own, you know. I know. And it lasted forever. They were trying to keep his seat. Months. Like uh, yeah, months. absolutely. And I had fundraisers for him and went up there and campaigned for him. He's And he's doing a great job as senator. Really is. Yeah. He really is. It, 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 it To me, it's like, because I'm out here and you guys who are in the chambers and like even as a vice president, you were more active than almost many vice presidents. You really kind of had your agenda and you, you did it. And then, and then after you, uh, we had a vice president who was president. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> in a more insidious, he was more insidiously uh, uh, engaged. But uh, but like I like I I'm prone to panic on a daily basis. Come on, yeah. And then when I talk to you guys who are in there, I'm like, what are, what are you doing? Are you guys freaking out or like what? But you know, you talk to Al, and it's like, well, this is the context of the government. This is how it works. And now we've got to, you know, we, we can only do what we can do. Yeah. And that's it, to me, that's very frustrating. Yeah. But I guess that's the way it works. <laughs> do you now when you look back, do do are you happy to, to be out? Uh, there's some things I miss about it, right. being able to pull the levers and push the buttons and uh, make things work, but there's a lot that I don't miss about it. And overall, I'm really grateful to have found a way to uh, make the world a better place uh, outside of that system. And when you look back, because this is a question, we kind of touched on it a little bit with Iraq, that you know, when you look at the presidency that you, 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 you probably had, but was was not that did not go the way it was supposed to. Do you have regrets about that, or do you feel like maybe that four years would have been a a tough four years? Oh, I I, I mean, I wish the Supreme Court decision had gone the other way. Of course, yeah. And I'm under no illusion that uh, there's any position in the world with as much uh, potential for making the world a better place than the position of president. Uh, so uh, you, you know, I, I I don't have that illusion. But since it didn't happen, I'm fortunate to, and feel grateful to have found other ways to serve the public interest. And and what do you what do you think that you know with this new war on science that is it, it, you know every day yeah. you, you know that yeah. you know this administration seems to be engaging in 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 what you know if it wasn't happening would be ironic uh, a, a t- attack on on the structures of education of government of of uh, you know of everything yeah what what do you see as a as a, a a career politician what what the hell is his end game yeah what do, i mean what do you think he he's gunning for well, you know, there there are things called heat-seeking missiles. I think he's a power-seeking president. He just wants more power, and uh, I can't psychoanalyze sure. him. Uh, but it, but uh, he, he seems to have a uh, place a high importance on uh, public approval uh, among those who he thinks uh, are part of his base, and that he doesn't seem to have any grand plan other than that i mean nothing's nothing good is getting done it's <laughs> it's another set of distractions and tweets every single day yeah 
and, and and nothing's getting done. Do you have people? Do you still check in with people? Yeah, sure. In, in the I, government, like, what are, what are you guys doing about this? Yeah, sure, absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, I served, I served with a lot of them who are still there, uh-huh. and I've gotten to know some of the ones that have been elected since I left. And no, there are a lot of good people there. They're good people trapped in a bad system. I think there Two is minutes. hope for changing it for you the do. better. Yeah. I, I I I feel that from you, and I appreciate that, and I believe you. Thank you. I'm, I'm going to leave this discussion feeling like, all right, Al Gore seems to be confident. I'm I'm going to go ahead and enjoy my day. <laughs> well, go go to the movie, an inconvenient <laughs> sequel, Truth to Power. Yeah, it opens in L.A. and New York, July 28th, which okay. is tomorrow as we tape this. And then on August 4th, uh, everywhere in the country. Well, thank you for doing it. Thank you for your service. And uh, it was an honor to talk to you, Mr. Vice President. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here in your garage. (laughs) You got it. That's it. That was me and the Vice President. Let's let's do what we can and, and hope for the best, folks. And I do need to say that that noise that you hear at the end there was someone knocking on the garage door so we would wrap it up had places to go places to go so there you go that's it i don't think i'm gonna play guitar today if that's all right with you all right take care of yourself yourselves your animals whatever you need to take care of boomer lives